I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care, the podcast about self-care by a host that, frankly, hates the term self-care. We have an excellent guest today. I am really excited. I've been trying to get Danita on this podcast for a minute because I just love her content and her point of view. And so, Danita Platt, would you just say hello to everybody? Hi, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us today. I'm excited to be here, Casey. I really am. Very excited. So, the way that I met you was that I had been posting content about home care, self-care from my morally neutral perspective. And someone asked me, hey, do you know anybody that does care tasks like you? And I was like, yeah, I can make some account recommendations. And I made some account recommendations from people that did like auto care, dietitian, like that had a similar sort of like gentle and compassionate view. I didn't want to recommend anyone that had like a commercialized self-help you know, like view to them. And I made these recommendations and immediately it was pointed out to me that every person I had recommended was a white person. And I was like, ooh, you are right. And I was thinking, I don't know any black women or black men or black people of color or people of color in general that were talking about gentle care tasks. And when I said that, immediately you were someone that people began to tag in my comment section. And I'm really grateful for that because I went over and I looked at your content and I was like, this is it. This person, I get them, they get me. And so will you talk a little bit about kind of who you are, what your background is? And I love in your bio online, it literally says gentle care strategies. And so tell me who you are and how you came to be doing gentle care strategies. Yeah. So yeah, I remember getting those tags and I was like, oh, wow. But I had already been following you. And I was like, Casey's going to handle this with grace as she always does, which she did. Yeah. So I, gosh, what got me started talking about gentle care was the fact that I had been absolutely overwhelmed trying to take care of my family as a single mom. Some years ago, I went through a divorce And I was just trying to get the kids up and at them. And it was like they were wearing uniforms to school. And I distinctly remember not having clean uniform shirts to send them to school in and just being like, and I was raking myself over the coals about that. And eventually I was just like, this has to stop. So I started, you know, I like to think I started doing what other people do, which is kind of consuming content on care tasks and like how to be able to take care of your family and get things done. And I'm working a full-time job and et cetera. And I started to just feel still really overwhelmed with the sensation of it all. Like 
I still just felt like I wasn't good enough. That's just the best way for me to describe it. And then eventually I was just saying to myself, you know what? And obviously this was undiagnosed ADHD, which immediately kicked me out of the box of all of the boundaries around how to get it done. And I was just like, what works for me? So I started doing little things that worked for me and realizing, how about you just be nice to yourself about this? (laughs) And not so mean. And I started feeling better letting go of those standards that I felt like I needed to live up to. And so I have a degree in home economics. All of my friends in college, they took to calling me the white Martha Stewart, the black Martha Stewart, rather. And I always felt weird about that. I went to an HBCU, you know, but I always felt weird about that statement because it wasn't even that I was the black Martha Stewart. It was that I didn't want to be Martha Stewart. Like, no, thank you. (laughs) Not that she's not, you know, for all the folks who love her wonderful. It just wasn't something I wanted to be because I wanted something else that let me do what I needed to do. So I kind of wandered over into the idea of gentle care for my own struggles around not feeling good enough to be able to take care of my family as a woman in America and a Black woman in America. And so I relate to your story a lot about, you know, the first place we go is the internet or books or podcasts or whatever to reach for, I guess, what could you know, self-help is like the genre, right? And you're looking at the organizing books and the cleaning accounts and and all of these things. And it felt like what was presented was very much an emphasis on being aesthetically pleasing on, right? So that Instagram aesthetic and also just like a really romanticized version. And I remember trying things like I tried to like home edit my pantry. I tried to, (laughs) and I actually love Marie Kondo. Yeah, me too. I tried to follow her book like to the T, right? I'm trying to think of other things. And sometimes they were just like general, like I'm going to be someone who wakes up at 5 a.m. and does this and this and this, like this one influencer I saw. And I had that same, like it didn't fit. I didn't stick with it. I tended to do it for a little bit. And I almost felt like I was like cosplaying an adult that had their life together. And then when I stopped doing it, I felt as though it must be because I failed. I didn't try hard enough. And I found myself in the same position you were in before I knew I had ADHD also of sort of just realizing, okay, maybe I need to figure out sort of like rhythms and rituals and ways to be about my house that serve me instead of worrying about like making myself into the type of person that just like floats around their house, Martha Stewart style. So I really relate to that. So I love a couple of the TikToks that you have made. And, you know, you mentioned like as a woman in America, and I have have been having conversations for a while about like, When I say care tasks are morally neutral, people will say, like, why is it? Why do we have such a moralized view of care tasks? And just from my own experience, I've talked a lot about, you know, well, as a woman, I'm not even two generations removed from the generation that if you were not good at domestic care tasks, you probably weren't going to get married. And if you're not married, you're on the street. And how our families had sort of passed down this messaging about how important it is as a woman. But what I have learned is that that's not the end of the story about why care tasks are so moralized. And there was this viral video 
on TikTok recently where this mom had cleaned her house and it looked beautiful. And she had this audio to it. And it literally said, if you're not cleaning your house literally all day, every day, then you're not a good mom. You're not a good wife. Your husband should be able to come home and to a clean house. And it was not parody. Like she meant it. And you had this incredible stitch where you talked about where some of that comes from in our culture and how it's related to the history of care tasks in America. And I just would love for you to enlighten us about that. Sure. Yeah. So, gosh, all of the stuff that comes, it's so, so, so packed and heavy and you don't even realize that you're laboring under years and years and years and generations of stuff that people have decided is the way to do something. And when we look at it historically, it really starts with the founding of the country. It starts with the arrival of Europeans here in America. And, you know, that happened in waves. So the first wave was that the settlement in Jamestown and the people who arrived were really about finding resources. You know, they're looking for gold. They're looking, how do I, capitalism, how do I gather resources at this place? And as we know, they did not think about farming or crops or feeding themselves. And we know how that ended up. Um, That didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have another group that lands just a year later, but they land uh, at Plymouth in what is that, Massachusetts. But these folks have a completely different perspective. They really feel... God ordained, like this sense of a God assignment, they are a hook, line, and sinker in that messaging. And they show up thinking, we are here to bring morality, Christianity, not, you know, the first group was like, I'm going to separate from the church. You know, this group is like, no, 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 we're going to redeem the church, you know, here. And they set out with that level of morality. And so you have these two ideas that are now floating around the East Coast, (laughs) where it's the idea of capitalism and making a way for yourself and sort of bootstrapping to change your circumstances. And you have this idea of my God ordained, the morality part is really super heavy with these people. And obviously in 1619, there's ship that shows up that has 20 some odd Africans on it. They are then this is where we end up with chattel slavery. It starts with indentured, but we know it moves quickly to chattel slavery and specifically the harvesting of tobacco, which is being sent back to England. And it becomes the crop, the cash crop is tobacco. And so now we need more Africans in order to be able to do this. But what's happening societally is that we're still, and by we, I mean European sellers, Americans now, are still living the way that they were living previously, which is housing. And we see all this play out in the architecture. It's housing that's very small. It's not these, when you think like plantations, you think sprawling and mansions and pillars, right? But it wasn't that initially. It was like one or two rooms and everyone is working side by side. So the white woman who is the enslaver, the white man who's the enslaver, the Africans who are there, they're all in the field together, harvesting tobacco together. They're all cooking in the same common room, in the the hearth that's in the common room in the house. So what we end up with is this side-by-side labor. Well, then we end up with this third wave of folk who show up from Europe, but they are here now 
they are aristocrats, they're gentry, they're of a different class than the original first two groups who showed up. And they arrive with the idea, why are we living with, working beside, why are we societally structured so that everyone is all in here together, right? If we're going to do racism, we have to learn how to do it because we weren't doing it before that, not in this way. So we have to learn what that looks like. And so it looks like separating whites from Africans. It looks like changing our architecture so that we don't have to live in the same spaces and places. So all of a sudden now, this idea of the work and the care and all of the care tasks that fall in line with what it is to be white in America or black in America, all of that falls to the enslaved population. But there's this idea also attached in there where the work is being done by the enslaved people, but the credit and the essence of it is really to the enslaved, the enslavers, the people who are enslaving people in this population. So in America, we end up with this incredible moral weight that comes with the way that we organize ourselves. And we've carried it forward in that if I'm going to be a good white woman who takes care of her white family, that is actually being paid forward from the aristocracy idea during the start of the country. And it seems like it's part of a carryover from England and Europe where the class divide over there was very much like if you were, you know, aristocracy, if you were lords and ladies, whatever, like they didn't really work. I mean, they maybe had like their investments and things, but they weren't the women baking bread, right? They weren't the men who were like tilling soil and, you know, farriers and things like that. They didn't work. So when those people came over and not only did they not work, but you mentioned like that God ordained, it wasn't like we're lords because we earned it. It was like, no, like our families are better. We were not meant by God to work. We were meant by God to be the landowners. And like, I'm sure there were people who were awful people, but there was also morality in that of like, it's my job to take care of these poor, you know, they don't know better. They live on my land, they pay rent, but I'm the Lord that takes care. And so obviously we move that those people come over and they're not working, but all of their care, right? Their care tasks back in England were being done by servants. Now they're being done by the enslaved population. And I thought it was so fascinating when you talked about how that becomes your status symbol. Like if you have enough servants and enslaved peoples to clean your big house, to cook your big meals, then that is a status symbol for how wealthy you are. And because of that class system brought over from England, the wealthier you are, the more right and moral you must have been in God's eyes for you to have gained that position. Exactly. And to that point, the invisible labor is where we find ourselves now, right? Because you would have had invisible labor during that time because we were working together. But now, nope, everyone, you go off into this slave quarters down here where no one's going to see you. You cook here, not in this kitchen. The kitchen's going to be off the house. All of the labor is done invisibly. And the white woman gets all the credit for all this invisible labor. And today... It's unsaid, but it's the cap, the feather in the cap of the white woman who can have her house clean, always have these 
incredibly high standards in her meals and meal preparation. The larger the house, the better. And she does that effortlessly. It's the invisible. We never see her working. Like I say all the time, the visual of a sweaty white woman cleaning her house, we don't see that. (laughs) That's not a thing, right? Because that isn't the messaging. And that is the standard that we find is because whiteness is the standard for everything else, that idea of whiteness is a standard for everything else, it becomes the standard for all women, even though it is really the standard for white women. Does that make like that? Yeah. And I heard somewhere that like we talk about this idea of like running a household, running your household. And a lot of like the Bible Belt will refer to a certain passage in the Bible talking about like a woman who runs her household. And but like running your household used to mean running your team of domestic laborers right? It was organizing the maids and the cooks and, you know, anyone who was working inside of your house. And fast forward, it's like we've retained the same like standards of cleanliness and home cooked meals and, you know, kids with the clean faces, like that effortless always put together. But now running your house means you doing it all by yourself, Absolutely. And that's new, right? That's like, I mean, that's what, maybe two generations, the whole do it all by yourself. And we see the result of it. People are exhausted because they're trying to live up to, like you said, the absence of this assistance, this unpaid labor that you have from the days of enslavement to the exploitation of domestic help, you know, up until now. And it just simply doesn't work because the standard is not reachable. It's not really an attainable standard by any stretch. And I remember listening to people talk about how, you know, white families had domestic help. And I think that in my generation right now, when you think about having a nanny or a housekeeper, that sort of seems like something only attainable to like the 1%. And I mean, partially because like what you actually have to pay a nanny today who like knows her worth and has like labor laws protecting her or him is like not something that is affordable to even I think most middle class, upper middle class, right? You really have to be in the six figures to pay someone $50,000 a year to care for your kids, you know, on top of whatever you might be paying for private school and all this. And what was so interesting to me is When I heard someone talk about that, the amount of white people that immediately jumped to, well, my family never had help. We were poor. My family never had help. We were poor. And I thought that was really interesting. And so I do not come from like a super wealthy family by any stretch of the imagination. My dad's family was well off and my mother's family was extremely poor. So I just got curious and I went to my dad and I said, dad, so my grandmother's name was Tatton. Did Tatton have help? When you were growing up, did y'all have, you know, people that came and helped? And he said, well, yeah, I had a nanny. So my dad had a black nanny and we grew up in Dallas, Texas, and she came and helped my grandmother and, you know, watched him after school and did all these things. And it was interesting. And my dad's, you know, second thing was I loved her. So she was, you know, like family to us. And like, you have to understand my family is very liberal. And so It was sort of eye-opening to me how close in our family history that was. And not that I don't have like a moral judgment on it. It's just I would never have considered myself someone who was in that 
sort of group. And when we talk about like white privilege, like part of my life is the way it is because of the type of life my father was allowed to lead. And the life that he was allowed to lead was in part because the life his mother was allowed to lead. And the life she was able to lead was in part because of cheap labor from Black women. Absolutely. And I asked my mother the same question, by the way, the one that grew up very, very poor. And because I thought, well, okay, my dad was a little more well off. And my mom said, so we didn't have anyone permanently, but my mother did have a young Hispanic woman that came after the birth of the children and helped her with the children. And she was with us until my sister one time over dinner said a word in Spanish, like past the whatever, and she was fired the next day. And I'm talking poor, very poor. And I was really sort of, it was eye-opening to go even very poor white families mostly could afford at least some help. Yes. So you talk about how the civil rights movement, as we, you know, the impact that that had on basically cheap, exploitable labor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's actually, you know, civil rights movement absolutely impacted. But even before that, the war effort of World War II, because so prior to that, we have basically black families are either sharecropping or they are working in the domestic sense. So we see the Great Migration, obviously, after the Civil War, we see uh, black families leave in mass and the Great Migration actually happens twice. But the first in mass movement out of the South, people end up going either straight up the coast. And so they end up stopping in D.C., Philadelphia, New York, right? Or they kind of this diagonal sort of end up in either Chicago or like Kansas. Kansas City becomes a huge place that um, the Black families migrated to. And so when you're there, we're also talking about industrialization, tenant tenement housing. What are we doing to house all these people? Because we need workers. So People show up and specifically I'll speak to D.C. because I'm here. This is part of why D.C. is called Chocolate City because of the Great Migration, where all of these hotels needed porters and cooks and bus hops and bellboys, etc. All of these families needed nannies and cooks and live-in, etc. And so there is this um, support network of African-Americans who are fulfilling these domestic roles. What ends up happening is when we're talking about World War II, the war effort requires workers because the men are gone. So we're going to employ women. Well, (laughs) prior to that, Black women uh, had to work. Uh, It was many laws passed saying that Black women absolutely could not just be home with their children. They were either sharecropping, which is what my family did, or working as domestic help. And this is mainly because white women are complaining, saying, I need help here in the house. My grandmother had slaves. Now, they're not obviously saying it like that. But the point is, she had help. My mother had help. And what I believe is my right is to have help with these. I'm not supposed to be overwhelmed with these kids. Right. And that same messaging is still there for there of I have to have this perfect clean house. So I want to hear more about this, but I'm going to have us pause to hear a word from our sponsors. 
Shout out to Claritin for giving me some free samples and for sponsoring this podcast. I am a seasonal allergy sufferer, which means that sometimes I'm lying in bed reading a book that is super happy and my husband says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Because I am sniffling and he thinks I'm crying. But no, it's just seasonal allergies. Luckily, that does not happen anymore because I use Claritin D. We can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sniffing, sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat. It's great. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies. It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. As for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Okay, we're back with Danita Platt, who is talking with us about sort of the history of care tasks in America and how that has influenced us today, sort of living under this heavily moralized view of care tasks and how we're all sort of drowning and we all feel ashamed. And so you were talking about how the women began to sort of demand that they have the help their grandparents had. Exactly. And so Black women are then, well, now you can't be home. You have to go to work. If you're not working as a sharecropper, then we need to make sure that you're working here domestically in our houses. So, but then with the war effort, the men go off to fight and workers are needed to continue with the war effort. And so that dismantled the working pot of Black women who could be in houses providing this domestic care. And so we look up and what Black women are now being employed, not just domestically. Now they can work on in manufacturing. They can work here in this industrial role. And that then completely dismantles the domestic pot that white women were able to reach for. And then we have the white women's feminist movement and all of that. We start looking at things like birth control, white women saying, I need birth control. And I say all the time, I get it. You don't want to have 10 of your husband's children. We understand, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> of what all that's going to mean. We don't want you to either. <laughs> exactly. We don't want you to either. So it all lays out into us not letting go of this concept of our value and our what we are owed as Americans, air quotes, you know, that all of that conceptual nonsense. And we haven't let that go. And we're just paying it forward constantly. So one of the things that is interesting to me when I sort of look out on the landscape of care tasks is that particularly kind of the platform that we're on on TikTok, 
So there seems to be this resurgence on at least, you know, the platform we're on TikTok, where they're calling themselves trad wives, which stands for traditional wife. And it's typically white women. They're often Christian and they're making content about home domestic life. It's not like a how-to, right? It's not like what you and I do. It's just a sort of like picturesque. It's almost like trying to bring back the 1950s housewife. And they talk about things like slow living and homemaking as a fulfilling role. And they even go one step further to suggest that homemaking is the superior role that a woman should be in. But like you said, it's never like the white mom with like a ratty T-shirt and a vomit stain sweating with the greasy hair being like, yeah, man, uh, taking care of the home is really like the superior place for women to be. No, it's always like some perfectly manicured, thin white woman who's, you know, not wearing a lot of makeup, but is still very like with the Eurocentric beauty standards, like holding a basket of apples. Right. As her like toddler jumps in puddles and sometimes they're even like living off grid and she's canning and baking. There's like beautiful aesthetic shots of her baking bread from scratch. And you had, I think, the most just like the best commentary where you said, you know, the picture that you're trying to, quote unquote, bring back of this sort of 1950s housewife where, you know, She's like so fulfilled and every moment is sweet. And it's this kind of romanticized idea. You said that didn't exist. And you said specifically, effortless care task management is a fantasy. And so I'm wondering if you could talk some about that. Yeah, that imagery that you just laid out, like it made me mad. Like I'm hot. Like I'm sitting here now, like hot at the thought of it. Yeah, it's frustrating because it is an absolute fantasy. It never happened because that work was done by Black women. It was done by Black women during enslavement. When you talk about care tasks in America, okay, so to define a care task, and I'm sure you have a beautiful definition. I'm going to throw mine out there. My definition of a care task is something that doesn't stop. It's not a project. It's a a care task doesn't stop. That's feeding people, clothing people, cleaning, managing dirt, etc. These things are, are just, they're just ongoing. All of those things were done in America by enslaved Black women and men. Invisible labor, all of that's done there. Then it fast forwards into after Reconstruction and all that, we still have this work being done by a Black workforce. And so in the 50s, there was no version of this white woman, hair perfectly combed, like you said, European beauty standards. She didn't exist. She wasn't a thing. And when you look at their like Pinterest boards and their vision boards for this, it's all 1950s marketing propaganda created by white men working at marketing agencies trying to sell laundry soap. Like the woman that you're trying to be was not even real. So it never happened. When you're attempting to create this trad life aesthetic, what you are saying is, I want to go back to the days of enslavement. I want to go back to the days where, because there's no such thing as doing all of that and not sweating and hair not out of place. Like there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. So what we're pining for are days where you had 
slaves. Like, I don't know how else to say it. That is what you're pining for. And interestingly enough, I'm reading this book right now called Sisters in Hate about the white woman's contribution to white nationalism. And that trad life aesthetic was started and is the main, one of the main pillars of the white nationalist message, which is, and it's white women who are promoting it, white nationalist women who are saying that the way that we're going to save whiteness in America and maintain white supremacy is by white women having white children and promoting trad life. It's interesting to me when I think about the amount of white women and men, again, in those comment sections online that wanted to jump so quickly to my grandmother didn't have anything. We were poor. My grandmother. And I think, first of all, that in a big majority of the case, that's actually not true. But even if for those percentage of people where that was true, one of the things I'm learning from you is that just because your poor Polish grandmother didn't have servants or enslaved people, she was still being expected to live up to yes. the pressures and the picture of what a woman is and what she does. And that picture was created by white aristocracy women who had enslaved people. Exactly. Yes. And she'll never be able to live up to that. She will always be behind the eight ball. She will always be behind the eight ball. And in the African-American community, because, again, whiteness as a concept, as a construct, defines itself as the standard that everyone else is measured against, then Black women, women of color in America, also must rise to the standard of this idea that is held by whiteness. And so no one can live up to the standard. Nobody can be good enough to be able to fulfill that. And that is nonsense. <laughs> and I want to even like take it a step further because, I mean, I get comments a lot online that say, you know, you're lazy, you're this, you're that, because I had five kids and kept it clean. My mother had nine kids and kept it clean. And I think that one of the things that is important to remember is that even if a woman managed to pull off doing that. Like most of us can't do it. But even if a woman manages to pull off doing it, we don't talk about what she had to sacrifice to do that. We don't talk about the fact that she never sat down, that she never had a life outside of the house, that she didn't have an identity outside of her motherhood, that she was disrespected by her husband and her grown children. We don't talk about how and I and I it's they're not happy and I know they're not happy because they're up in my comment section acting like assholes to me and happy people that lived a life that was such a romanticized, homemaking, fulfilling life don't go around shaming strangers on the internet. And it's like, you can tell that where that anger comes from and that projection of judging other women is because they succeeded and the prize they got was a shitty life. There it is. And now they're angry and they want everybody else to do it too. Yes. And that lie tells you that if you can accomplish this, you're going to get whatever, wealth or whatever it is you feel like you're owed, you're going to get that. And then when you realize that's never going to happen, the consolation prize is self-righteousness. It is looking down your nose at everyone who can't do it. And it's interesting because 
when I'm speaking to a group about gentle care and having this conversation, I know when I have somebody in the audience who has been successful because I get the stank eye when I start talking about <laughs> it. Like, oh, well, I did it. Yeah. But you're not, you're not doing too well, are you? And those weren't great times, were they? You know? And it's also why I talk about, as Black women in America, part of, I feel like, honoring the fact that when I think about a Black woman who was enslaved, she was born, she lived, and she died in enslavement. And she never swept a floor for her own benefit. Her floor was dirt. She never washed a dish for her own benefit. She never experienced anything around a care task that was to the benefit of her or her children or her family or her loved ones. She born lived in doing that. I say, as a Black woman, I'm going to not sweep today for all the times that Black women swept because they had to. Like, that's my moment of, I'm going to honor that woman who never washed clothes because she just, that was what was on the list for her to do today, you know, to take care of what needed to be taken care of. No, she only did it under duress and under constant terrorism. And so that reaching for rest or whatever I do as a care task, being able to do it of my own impetus, I feel like is a moment in celebration of Black women who never had that opportunity. That's really powerful. I want to pause there because I have a, a question for you when we come back. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Okay, so we're back with Danita Platt. And so here's my question, sort of coming to the end of this conversation. So the people that are listening, when we're thinking about 
trying to address our own relationship to care tasks and get to this place where we both have a functional space, but that we're not living to serve our space. And you talked a bit about, you know, how you are connecting to your ancestors and using that to empower yourself to sort of break free from this sort of oppressive culture of care task perfection. And so I'm just curious what you would say, maybe more about that, about if we want to live more joyfully in our homes and experience more quality of life and freedom, it sounds like you can't avoid confronting this cultural history. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't think that you can stand in the midst of all of the expectations and all of the stuff that's dumped on you and not address it. I think you have to stop and turn your attention to it. And it's interesting because the stuff of life demands so much attention. And I always ask myself, like, that's so interesting because it's almost like a constant distraction. So I won't turn my attention to the nonsense behind why. Like who benefits from me being overwhelmed by inanimate objects? You know, I talked to, <laughs> I've talked to a friend all the time. She says, I have to ask myself, who benefits from that? And I'm like, yeah, because how many women went to the grave with whatever was inside of them? And it's just laying out there in a casket. The world never experienced it because she was overwhelmed with inanimate objects. And I feel like that is an important question to ask. One, I think the most important question to ask yourself in life is who am I? And then live up to that. And are you a duster? Like, is that the answer to that question? Because if so, then fine, dust all the stuff, right? Because that's who you are. But if the answer to that question is more than I'm a wiper or a duster or a washer, all of the actions that come with care tasks, the answer to that is different. Let's figure out how to manage this stuff so you can get around to that thing because I want to see it. I'm interested in that. You know what I mean? I want to celebrate and cheer you on and I don't want you to take it to the grave. So yeah, stopping in the midst of it all to, to answer that question, to ask and answer that question is incredibly important. Well, and it's the stuff, it's the the stuff that has to be done in order to live. And I think it all comes back to, you know, do I exist to serve my space or does my space exist to serve me? And, you know, just echoing what you said about like, it's really almost impossible for one person to do every single care task that needs to be done for really just one person, but much less a whole family, while they're now expected to also work 40, 50 hours a week, right? And at some point, we have to make the decision to break away from that narrative that has been given to us. Yes, absolutely. And liberate ourselves and free ourselves from that and ask those tough questions to say, in what way am I not liberated? And then how do I access liberation in that area? Well, this has been an incredible conversation. And why don't you take a moment to tell everybody where they can find you if they're interested in following you? Sure. So you can find me in Casey Davis's comment section. <laughs> laughing at her enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm on TikTok, uh, Danita Platt. I am on Instagram, Danita LaShawn Platt, but you can get to Instagram through TikTok. So come hang out with me over there. And I always say, you know, ultimately my point is let's take care of each other. So 
that is the purpose of my uh, of my online presence. <laughs> and your content is great. You have so many practical tips and you are so approachable. And I just, I love the content that you put out into the world. And I'm so grateful that you made time for me today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. And you know, I love, you know, I just hang out over, over on your page because it's absolute gold. So thank you for what you do. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.